WRFI Community Radio News is made possible by listeners like you. Help us tell important stories about your community. Head to WRFI.org slash donate. Antonio Fermi. After the headline news, you'll hear about Cayuga Addiction Recovery Services' continued programming amid the pandemic. But first, here's the weather forecast, courtesy of the National Weather Service. Tonight, scattered snow showers with a low in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, cloudy with possible snow with a high in the mid-30s. Tomorrow night, chance of snow showers with a low in the upper 20s. And looking to Thursday, Mostly cloudy with a high in the low 30s. And now here's tonight's news for Ithaca and Watkins Glen. In local news, COVID vaccine distribution is ramping up locally, as announced in a statement today by the Tompkins County Health Department. Clinics held by Tompkins County this week are for individuals in the New York State Phase 1A category that are eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Phase 1A eligible individuals include outpatient and ambulatory frontline high-risk healthcare workers that provide direct in-person patient care. Others include home care workers and aides, including personal care aides and consumer-directed personal care workers and hospice workers. Additional eligible Phase 1A personnel are staff of and residents of nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities, and adult care facilities who have not already received vaccinations through the Pharmacy Partnership for Long-Term Care Program. Tompkins County Public Health Director Frank Krupa stresses that his department is ready to roll out the vaccine to thousands of county residents. He adds that if individuals are eligible, they should register and get vaccinated. The Schuyler County Health Department also says that any individuals in the Phase 1A category are eligible for the vaccine. The health department plans to distribute vaccines and will be updating information about future COVID vaccine clinics on its website, SchuylerCounty.us. That's SchuylerCounty.us. People included in Phase 1A can register on the Tompkins County Health Department webpage to receive a vaccine at the clinics. Those will be held from 6.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. tomorrow, January 6th, to this Friday, January 8th, at the shops at Ithaca Mall, 40 Catherwood Road. There is no residency requirement to get vaccinated at a specific location. There is no cost or copay for the vaccine. If you have health insurance, you may be asked for that information, but it is not required. More information about vaccine clinics and eligibility groups can be found at wrfi.org slash coronavirus under the January 5th update. 
More COVID news. Tomorrow at 4 p.m., Tompkins County and Cayuga Health System officials will give the latest local updates on COVID-19, including more information on local distribution of the vaccine. Tom County Administrator Jason Molino, Public Health Director Frank Krupa, and Cayuga Health System CEO Dr. Martin Stallone will speak at the event, which will be live-streamed at the Tompkins County YouTube channel. The Cayuga Healthcare System includes the Cayuga Medical Center in Ithaca and the Schuyler County Hospital in Montour Falls. The three officials will, will answer questions submitted anytime up to the event or asked on the chat section at the time of the event. Dr. Stallone will also delve into Cayuga Health System's hospital capacity, the local COVID sampling sites, and more. To learn how to submit a question or to find a link to the county's YouTube channel, go to wrfi.org slash coronavirus and view today's January 5th COVID update or call 211 for more information. Now we'll take a look at the local COVID-19 caseload. The number of hospitalizations due to complications from the virus are at 24 as of today, seven less than last night. According to the Tompkins County Health Department, as of the time of our 6 p.m. broadcast, there are 285 active cases of COVID-19. Today, there were an additional 50 positive cases and 17 people were released from quarantine. In Schuyler County today, there were seven new cases of COVID-19 reported. 61 active cases remain, according to their health department. Five people remain hospitalized due to the virus. And uh, as a quick update, we are just getting word that here on WRFI's airwaves, tomorrow from 4 to 5 p.m., we will be carrying the aforementioned town hall event uh, from the Tompkins County and Cayuga Health System officials who are giving the latest local updates on COVID-19. So tune in right here on the station or at WRFI.org at 4 p.m. And the town hall will run until 5 p.m. And go to WRFI.org slash coronavirus for today's update to get a link to the YouTube channel if you can't listen on the radio. In even more COVID news, Watkins Glen and Odessa Montour High Schools are planning to allow students to participate in two different low-risk winter sports, bowling and swimming, beginning this month. In the new abbreviated winter sports season, students will be permitted to practice their sport with their team. The Odessa file reports that those students will not be able to compete in person against students at different schools. Instead, the students will do a swim meet or bowling tournament on their home turf, record times and scores, and compare them with another team competing, competing at their own school. Watkins Glen High School Athletic Director Rod Whedon says that competition will look much different. However, the practice of competing virtually will help students work on achieving their, be their personal best scores and times. Watkins Glen Schools will also be fielding an indoor track team. Superintendent Chris Wood of the Odessa Montour Schools says their high school bowling and swimming teams would also be having virtual competitions with other schools. He says that his high school would not be able to have an indoor track season because of budgetary constraints. Whedon notes that once virtual competitions get underway, spectators may be able to watch remotely. Now in some non-COVID news, Longview, 
a senior living community on South Hill in Ithaca, has hired a new chief executive officer. Paul Phillip takes office after executive director Mark Massera announced his retirement after 30 years working at the facility. The Ithaca Time reports that Phillips is a veteran of the nonprofit aging services sector. Phillips began his career at Friendly Senior Living in Rochester, New York, and has also worked as a CEO for the Lathrop Communities, a Kendall affiliate in Massachusetts. He comes to Longview after working for a construction firm that specializes in developing non-for-profit senior living communities. Phillips is a license. Phillips is licensed as a nursing home administrator in both New York and Ohio. In other local not-for-profit news, Hospicare and Palliative Care Services has hired Joe Sammons as its eighth executive director. Betsy East, president of Hospicare Board of Directors, notes his extensive experience leading organizations in the healthcare field, including in his role as the former president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of the Southern Finger Lakes. Sammons currently serves as the executive director of Challenge Workforce Solutions. Kim DeRosa stepped down from her position as uh, executive director of Hospicare in September 2020. Since then, interim executive director Joe Mariana, former Tompkins County administrator, has led the hospice organization. In New York State news, New York State has reported its first case of a new and more contagious coronavirus strain that is widespread in the United Kingdom. The case was identified in Saratoga Springs, just north of Albany. The infected patient is in his 60s and reportedly did not travel recently, according to the Ithaca Journal. Governor Andrew Cuomo said yesterday that this suggests the spread was in the community. Cuomo expressed concern since the state is having the highest number of positive cases since the spring. The patient is associated with a jewelry store in Saratoga Springs, and so far is the only one to have the new strain. Several other workers at the store have tested positive for COVID-19. However, it is still unclear whether they've contracted the new strain as well. As of yesterday, around 5,000 tests specifically looking for the new strain have been done in New York. This was the first sample that tested positive. Now looking to some national news. Today, Georgia voters set the Senate's course for at least the next two years and President Trump faces backlash for pressuring an election official. More on the latest U.S. election news, courtesy of our friends at Pacifica and the Public News Service. Welcome to 2020 Talks, where we track the 2020 elections in uncharted territory. Georgia, the whole nation is looking to you. Georgia's two Senate runoff races will decide the balance of power in the Senate and possibly the course of the country for at least the next two years. President-elect Joe Biden was in Atlanta yesterday drumming up support for Democratic candidates John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. One state can chart the course, not just for the next four years, but for the next generation. And summing on behalf of the Republicans defending their seats in the GOP-controlled chamber, Vice President Mike Pence. For a Senate majority that will respect our most cherished freedoms, Georgia, we need Senator David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. President Donald Trump was also in Georgia campaigning a day after a bombshell recording came out of him pressing Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find votes that would overturn his loss to Biden. 
In reaction to the call, Georgia election official Gabriel Sterling told reporters Trump's conspiracy theories are undermining faith in the election system. There are people in positions of authority and respect who have said their votes didn't count, and it's not true. Former President Barack Obama starkly rebuked Trump's behavior, calling him categorically unfit for the job. Legal experts say Trump's behavior raises questions about election law violations. The president of the United States tried to use his office to bully a secretary of state to unlawfully change votes. Georgia state law professor Eric Siegel also warns the country is in grave trouble if the GOP does not openly disown Trump. For the first time in four years, I think maybe he did something that will come back to haunt him with his base. Trump's attorney says his legal team is disappointed the call was secretly recorded and released and called it a confidential settlement discussion about election results. Tomorrow, the focus shifts from Georgia to Capitol Hill. President Trump says he'll join what promotional videos have been calling Stop the Steel rallies to coincide with Congress's usually ceremonial counting of electoral votes. Despite Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's disapproval, at least 12 senators say they'll protest Joe Biden's win. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy reportedly did give his blessing to 140 Republican representatives. New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik is among them. I am committed to restoring the faith of the American people in our elections that they are free, fair, secure, and according to the United States Constitution. With each successful protest, both chambers have up to two hours of debate before voting again. Despite concerns about the tone Republicans are setting for the Biden presidency, House Democratic Caucus Chair Hakeem Jeffries says party leaders are ready to move forward. Our focus as House Democrats will remain on addressing the public health crisis and the economic crisis that has resulted in more than 300 and 50,000 Americans dying. City leaders worried about violent clashes are encouraging residents to avoid the downtown area over the next couple of days. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. Thanks for listening. And that concludes our headline news for tonight. Coming up, how Cayuga Addiction Recovery Services has continued its programming in the Pacific Center. It's after the break, right here on Morning, everyone. Gather round, grab a chair, make yourself a drink, blow your smoke into the air. Contemporary sadness, fire-breathing dragons are everywhere. But the days go by here in old Belvedere, and the way that it goes, it's just the way that it is. Do you ever wonder? Community Radio News, I'm Michaela Savitt. And I'm Antonio Fermi. The Addiction Center estimates that nearly 21 million Americans suffer from some form of addiction, yet only 10% of them receive treatment. Since 1990, overdose deaths have become more than tripled, and between 1999 and 2017, more than 700,000 Americans have died from overdosing on the drug. Cayuga Addiction Recovery Services, otherwise known as CARS, is working to change that. They use evidence-based techniques in the Tompkins County area to help people overcome addiction. So, what does this service look like? What will the fight against addiction have to look like after the pandemic is over? What types of services will be retained? 
In this feature, WRFI guest contributor Josh Durso, FingerLakes1.com news director, explores these questions in conversation with Brad Walworth with Cuga Addiction Recovery Services. This piece first aired on yesterday's podcast on Finger Lakes One, The Daily Debrief. Here you go. We've got an outpatient center in downtown Ithaca. We also have an opioid treatment program in that outpatient center, two entirely different programs. And then we have a men's residential center in Trimmonsburg, which is about 12, 13 miles from our outpatient program. And we are under New York State Oasis Regulations, Office of Alcohol and Substance Abuse Supports. And um, because of that, we're regulated, of course, by Oasis. And we, all of our programs, technically, we have three different programs. The outpatient program, which works with people with substance use disorders. Um, The opioid treatment program, which is geared specifically toward opioid with a few different kinds of um, treatment modalities and uh, with the men's residential program, which is a long-term SUD program for men, might be ranging in time from maybe a a few months there to six months. It really is based on individual need for services. So uh, what were some of the trend lines that the the organization was seeing before, say, February of, of 2020? Well, before the pandemic, we would have people coming into the program Um, We had just started our opioid treatment program in January, so that was just off the ground. We were capped at 50 people by New York State Oasis, um, basically to get the program going, make sure everything was running smoothly. So before the pandemic started with our opioid treatment program, we were just kind of getting going with that, just adding clients, um, people coming in, going through, and kind of an interview assessment process, working with nursing, um, very much in-person services. With our outpatient program, again, it was very much in-person services. People had been coming to the program for various lengths of time. New people coming into the program, getting assessments on site for services, seeing if they needed an outpatient level of care, or perhaps a different level of care, we could refer them to other agencies as needed. But everything was very much in person. In fact, before the pandemic, we didn't have any kind of telehealth services. And uh, those weren't even an option for us. Mm-hmm. With, when the pandemic hit, um, obviously, it was kind of a case of how long can we keep these services going as is. Um, telehealth became an option. Um, obviously, we were needing to acquire different kinds of um, equipment to be able to provide telehealth services. We got some grants. We got some donations from different local organizations and providers and, and individuals, which were very helpful, and um, so that we were able to get our telehealth services off the ground. As the pandemic kind of advanced, most of our services went more over to telehealth. For example, we began doing assessments entirely by phone or by by Zoom. Um, And at different times through this, we've gone to more telehealth or maybe more in person. It's kind of been off and on, depending on how trends are going, what we have to do based on Department of Health standards, what we have to do based on OASIS standards. Um, Currently, we're doing a little bit in person through our outpatient services. It's primarily still telehealth, though. With the opioid treatment program, it's a little different because people come in to receive their medication doses on site. For example, we have methadone as medication-assisted treatment, and we have suboxone, but primarily the opioid treatment program is methadone, so people need to come on site to get methadone you know, administered to be that kind of program. So, you know, we're able to give more 
take-home methadone doses because of the pandemic, um, because of people, some people being in the program longer, were they able to reduce their on-site time? But we still have people coming in for methadone for the opioid treatment program. Our residential program is running as normal, um, as normal as can be, but we don't have the um, we don't have the volunteer services we usually have. For example, with a residential program, we'll typically have people coming in to offer yoga to our residents or to offer um, AA services or to offer different spiritual services. Um, we haven't been able to have volunteers coming in because we're trying to reduce the number of people on site as much as possible. Um, you know, we have had a couple of COVID positive cases at our residence. We're prepared for that. We have quarantine beds. When we have a COVID positive, we restrict admissions um, per Department of Health regulations, per OASIS regulations to keep compliant with those and to keep everyone healthy. Um, fortunately, we've been, overall, we've been very healthy at our residential program because of the focus on sanitizing, the focus on hand washing, social distancing, mask wearing. Um, we really have to keep up with that, but it's, um, it's very important to keep people healthy and to keep them receiving those services they need. What, uh, what was that like, getting, a, getting a, what I would imagine is a pretty robust program up and off the ground uh, at the start of and in the early days of a pandemic, especially one that's lasted as long as this has? Obviously, we're not at the finish line yet, but it looks like the finish line is at least in sight now. Well, the biggest uh, the biggest part of that is our nursing staff, and we have a nursing staff at our outpatient program through opioid treatment services, and we also have, of course, an on-site nursing staff at our residential program. And the biggest thing is for our nursing staff, our nurse practitioner, our medical director that's over our, our whole program to stay up to date as possible, and just the changing regulations, the changing, um, you know, as this pandemic was developing, the, the knowledge was continuously changing. So so our medical staff especially had to keep up to date, had to keep, you know, up to the moment with, you know, the changes in what was being learned about the virus, the changes in what we were needing to do to keep people healthy and safe. And um, so a big part of it was our nursing staff keeping up to date on all the information. But another part was, of course, staff flexibility. Um, and the staff here has been incredible in terms of being flexible and in terms of going above and beyond and um, really doing what needs to be done to deliver services, to keep people healthy. And, you know, another component with a residential program is the fact that we had, you know, a fair number of volunteers coming in and offering their services. And when we discontinued those, we still needed to be providing those kinds of services that our residents really benefited from. So our nursing department, for example, out of our residents came up with a whole health and wellness program that they hadn't been doing before. And they were able to offer things like trauma-informed yoga. They were able to provide versions of group fitness, of course, with distancing and keeping all those things in mind to keep people healthy and virus-free with that as well. So it's just a case of a lot of it was a case of the staff really taking on additional roles and doing the things they need to do. But in this kind of environment, really, you're working with people. You're, you're, you have staff that are very committed to doing what needs to be done to help people out from addiction. And it's really been a case of people rising above to meet the which has been really good. You're listening to WRFI Community Radio News. As a guest, this is a guest feature from WRFI Community. Uh, guest contributor Josh Durso, FingerLakesOne.com news director, and he's speaking with Brad Walworth with Huga Addiction Recovery Services about the continued programming at CARS amid the pandemic. Walworth says the biggest challenge CARS has seen with the pandemic and opioid and addiction is isolation of individuals with addiction. 
He elaborates further. One of the worst things that you can do is to isolate someone who's all who's needing services, who's needing to be with different um, with different resources. For example, they may be participating in individual counseling sessions in an outpatient center. But hopefully, they're also having a sponsor, they're having a, a personal mentor, they're involved in in groups maybe at that outpatient center, such as CARS, or at groups in the community for addiction. Um, and and all those resources, all those you know outlets. Are really needed by people with with substance use disorder because they're needing to connect, they're needing to have community, they're needing to have you know people that that they can go to and say, hey, I'm running into this challenge. Um, how did you handle this? And when the pandemic hit and everything started closing down and there was much more isolation, you're taking people that that need to need to be working with people, need to be you know having those resources, and you're and you're closing down some of those resources, which has been you know disastrous for people. That, that need to be connected to those. And um, telehealth services have been, have been amazing. Um, tele, one benefit, a couple of benefits of telehealth are the fact that people that were having a hard time re- getting those resources in the past, for example, getting to outpatient services because of transportation challenges or because of childcare issues, now that they're able to use telehealth, I mean, it's just opening it up to treatment for a lot more people that couldn't traditionally do that so easily. But the challenge with the pandemic has also been the isolation, um, where people work well one-on-one in person. Um, For some people, it's very challenging to do that over the phone, or it's very challenging to do that over Zoom, or, you know, they're just, they're being isolated to the point where they can't access resources, or they're maybe using their own resources that aren't so healthy. So the isolation has been the biggest, the biggest challenge overall. Um, there have been, of course, you know, with the pandemic, there have been in New York State seeing that increase in overdoses, seeing that, um, you know, just the, and related to the challenge, related to the stress of the times. A lot of people with substance use disorder, um, you know, if they're dealing with additional stress in their lives, that can be a trigger for them to for use. So, it, you know, it's very important at a time like this for people to have more access to resources rather than less. Telehealth has been an amazing benefit, but, um, uh, and people are finding ways to, to have those resources continue. But for people to access services now might be more challenging. Outpatient services, for example, people used to come in and do an assessment in person where now they're doing it over the phone. And um, generationally, that can be a challenge. People, younger people, just not as comfortable using a phone. And um, so the resources are there. They're different. You know, the need to adapt. Um, it's all been a challenge, the isolation especially. When you think about uh, 2021 and sort of the moment we're in now, what do you see as maybe one of the bigger opportunities that, that uh, organizations like yours uh, have to maybe make up some progress here? Obviously, I would assume the continuation of telehealth will probably be a benefit in the long term, especially after uh, the pandemic is over with. But what do you guys see as sort of some of the opportunities uh, that are going to come out of this thing? Well, I, I think, you know, services can become very set in their ways, just like anything else. And um, as you mentioned, the telehealth is, is a huge benefit. The fact that um, the pandemic has opened the door for telehealth in New York State for different providers to be able to use before we couldn't we couldn't use that. And um, so that's been a huge benefit in 2021 that will continue to be a benefit, even when the pandemic's gone, to be able to continue meeting needs through telehealth that weren't being met for. Also, the pandemic has taught, I think, all providers to be much more flexible with services, much more flexible with service delivery. 
finding creative delivery options, finding more access for people. Um, you know, as the pandemic goes out, um, the flexibility learned, the access, the additional access, um, all these things are going to be a huge benefit for people to be able to have that they didn't have before. WRFI guest contributor Josh Durso, FingerLakes1.com news director, in conversation with Brad Walworth with Cuga Addiction Recovery Services. Visit fingerlakes1.com, that's fingerlakes1.com, for more of the online paper's work. And that will do it for our program today. The headlines at the top of our program were written by WRFI contributors Esther Raccoon and WRFI News Director Michaela Savitt. I'm Antonio Fermi. And I'm Michaela Savitt. On behalf of the entire WRFI News team, have a good evening. One, two, three. W-R-F-I. W-R-F-I. <laughs>